Hey, welcome to the New Life podcast. We're so glad that you could join us. New Life is one family, many churches, and we're located in Brisbane, Coolangatta, Moreton Bay, and Rabina. And we exist to simply see more people, more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for our series we've titled Foundations, the Apostles' Creed. In a world where truth can feel subjective, the Apostles' Creed offers statements of truth that beckon the heart to respond. So join us as we explore these truths that have sustained historic Christianity amid turbulent times and encounter a God not merely to be believed in, but experienced. We pray this message encourages you as we apprentice to become more like Jesus together. Enjoy the podcast. Friends, as we come to uh, step into the scriptures and what will become clear is the Apostles' Creed, uh, can I invite you just to close your eyes, bow your heads, we'll pray and we'll prepare to hear from the Lord. Father, I thank you that uh, I've prepared something, but you've prepared something and you're going to speak it, Lord. I pray, Father, that as we step through church history and find ourselves in the creed right now, that we'd hear from your word and you would illuminate it to us by your Holy Spirit. Father, we're ready, we're willing, and by your Spirit, might we be able to put into practice what you speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Awesome, friends. Well, let me just add my welcome and say, if it's your first time here at New Life Brisbane, it's such a delight to have you. And uh, please come and say hi after the service, and I'd love to warmly welcome you alongside our elders and uh, our other pastors and leaders here. Uh, We're stepping into a new series today, and that series is called Foundations, and the very title of the series got me really thinking about the nature of foundations. Uh, My wife and I were having coffee with uh, a couple in our church this morning, and they were telling us about the history of Amsterdam. I don't know if you know this, but back in the 13 and 1400s, it used to be a swamp. But if you go to Amsterdam these days, the whole city is a grid, the trains run on time, everything is fabulous and perfect, and the Dutch, sort of this harsh personality in the north of Europe, just make things happen. It's stunning, predictable, wonderful. But it wouldn't have happened if in the 1300s they didn't drill down and put pylons into the swampland 80 metres deep. Uh, from a bunch of cedar and and, and woods and trees that provided the platform from which they could build their city. Uh, Some of the buildings in that city still exist with stability today because of the nature of those foundations. Or if you look into the history of skyscrapers, you would realize that humanity wouldn't wouldn't have figured out how to build high into the sky if they didn't figure out first how to build deep into the ground. And if you go through what it's required to build a foundation for a sky rise to be built upon, uh, first, you start with topsoil, topsoil, topsoil. Yeah, it's like, sounds like a fancy hair salon, doesn't it? Uh, first, you go through topsoil, it's called humus, and then you make your way through some of the rocky subsoil, and then you find weathered rock, but then deep down, you find something called bedrock. And only if you find the bedrock can you provide a foundation strong enough to support the erecting of a big high rise. The takeaway point is this, to go tall, you've got to dig deep. You need a foundation. And I love the title of this series because it holds out hope that there'd be multiple foundations, one foundation expressed through multiple ways that we could build upon as a church. And the way we're doing that for the next eight weeks into Easter is this, the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed. Now, you might know the creed. It starts off, I believe in God, 
the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, and so on and so forth. We'll actually stand together at the end of my sermon and announce the creed. But the history of the creed is interesting. Uh, one of the myths that's sort of passed down in the church about the creed is that it's called the Apostles' Creed because each apostle wrote, wrote one line of the creed each. Now, I don't think you can bank on that, just to be honest, but interesting. Historically, the first time we see it used was in baptism ceremonies in the early church in the second century towards the back end of the first 100 ADs. And what would happen is the person to be baptized, bit of history here, we'll move past it real quick, but the person to be baptized would say the first stanza, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, so on and so forth. And then out of nowhere, he'd be pulled by the minister down into the water and he'd be like, what's going on? And then he'd come back up and he'd say, and I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord, his only son. And then bang, he'd be pulled down by the minister and back up for this final breath, Trinitarian breathing for my life here. And he says, I believe in God, the Holy Spirit and so on and so forth. And they'd be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son and the Spirit. And it was one of the key liturgies that became the infrastructure within which the early church developed. Um, a lot of people think of it as like a helpful summary of Christian belief. Did you know that the Orthodox, the Protestants, and the Catholics all subscribe to the Apostles' Creed? But historically, the best way to understand it was more as like a pledge of allegiance, that we'd say in the face of a Roman Empire or a fading world, here's what I believe. We want to step into the Apostles' Creed and, and just ask, what could it give us as modern Christians? And today I want to unfold two, maybe three things. Two things that I think it could give us, maybe three that it definitely could. Something to do with truth, something to do with maturity. And I want to give us one little preface before I jump into each of those two points, stepping into the phrase, I believe. What does it mean to say, I believe? And the preface is this. Um, if you're like a Protestant Christian, like for example, I came to faith in a church called the Church of Christ, which is a denomination who would say things like this, no creed but Christ. In other words, the only text we use as normative for the Christian life is not some creed passed down through the church, but the Holy Scriptures inspired by God. And I just want to say, here's a really helpful way that I stole from another preacher to think through what the creed could give us as we look through it to the Scriptures. Um, has anyone here seen a moonrise before? Incredible. I hadn't seen one until like, you know, late in my teenage years, but there'll be one on the screen behind me. If you look at a, a moonrise, you see this beautiful thing peering up on the horizon. It's got this reddish hue to it. And as you look at it, you just think, man, that thing is marvelous, that thing is luminescent. But if I was to ask you the question, from where does the light come? You wouldn't be able to say the thing you're looking at, right? It's not the moon, it's the sun. The moon acts as this refractive, reflective, mirroring body so that the warmth, the light, the beauty and the heat of the sun would be pictured in and through the moon. And here's my invitation for us for these next sort of six-ish weeks as we step into Easter. The Apostles' Creed is sort of like the moon to the sun of God's scriptures. It's got no light in of itself. It summarizes the light we've been given in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's got, no, it's got no luminescence in of itself. It's not inherently light-giving. It, it just reflects what we know is true as we sit and read and sit under the authority of God's Word. So let's discover two things in the Creed, but really in the Scriptures this afternoon as we look at the phrase, I believe. Bit of a preface there. Two things, truth 
and maturity. Truth. It tells us something about truth as modern Christians. And I want us to see that this afternoon. To say, I believe, tells us something about what is true. And here's the big idea. Knowing God is an exercise in discovering truth, not inventing truth. And as Christians, truth, the creed would have us believe, truth is something we confess, it is not something we create. To stand in the corridors of history and say with our ancestral brothers and sisters, I believe, and then repeat the same things after them as they look at the scriptures and try and make sense of the Christian story, it's to agree with the fact that truth, what I know about God, is not something I create, it's something I confess with a whole host of brothers and sisters that span time and place. Today, there's a lady named Tara Isabella Burton, and she studied her PhD in Oxford, and she wrote a book recently on the state of modern spirituality. And she, in reading her book, she sort of paints this picture that modern people run the risk of something that she wants to call like a DIY spirituality. She, she made the case that, and the book's called Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World, she made the point that the way modern people think about religion is sort of like this a la carte, buffet, DIY, choose your own adventure, goosebumps novel-esque way by which we come to discover God. And so we might walk through the marketplace of ideas and steal a bit of atheism and put it on our religion and steal a bit of Buddhism because we like the peace factor and, and then take some of the morals of Christianity because we like some of Jesus' morals. But not others, and in other words, a DIY spirituality. And I think we get this, right? Like if you ask the random person on the street, what do you believe? They'll say, well, you know, in my deepest heart, I think there's something, but it's really important that we all get along. And on top of that, here's some things I really resonate with. And what they're doing in that moment, and I'm guilty of it sometimes in my Christian walk, what we're doing in that moment is we're saying whatever resonates with my modern moral taste buds that I've come to absorb from the culture that I'm in, that's what I would think is true. I'm gonna create it, DIY it, buffet, cart it into my worldview. I'll try and slow down as I say some of these words. Um, but that's the modern, and she would put it like this. She says the modern world trades institutional religion for intuitional spirituality. Interesting. Now that's the modern world out there and you might say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm not subject to this, Alex, I'm immune, I know God. And I'd just like to say, actually, modern Christians run the risk of doing this too. Have you ever chatted with a Christian brother or sister and just realized that actually the emphases they put on God are just different from yours? Like, you might believe the same book gives you the same information, but you emphasize one thing over another at the expense, perhaps, of another. And so I heard a few famous preachers talk about it like this, and as I say this, think of this not as me slandering or throwing shade, but just as a means by which to capture our modern cultural moment. You can chat to one Christian, and it's almost like they've got an environmental Jesus, whose key goal in this world is sort of horizontal change of the atmosphere. Now, is it true that God wants to renew creation? Absolutely, can't throw that by the wayside. But if you elevate that at the expense of another thing, then what does that mean for the other person who's got a saving souls, Jesus? We talked about this a little bit last week with vision and mission. Uh, you can chat with people today and they can have an ethical Jesus or a progressive Jesus or a saving souls Jesus or a social justice Jesus or in our, even more acutely for our moment, a just war Jesus. 
or a pacifist Jesus, progressive or conservative. And here's what we can do. We can take a particular truth about God, elevate it over others, and here's what the creeds ask us to do, just to put that in line with the rest of everything else, the summary of Christian truth we've received from the apostles. Here's, here's the basic point to say, to say, I believe with the history of the church is to say, I've discovered truth and I'll hold all of it in tension, the whole counsel of God, elevating not one over another at the expense of the other, but all of it. God's care for creation, his desire to save souls, etc., etc. Why do I say this? I say this because in the past, um, the example that I think of when I think of Christians who can do this, and I, I'm at risk of this as well, I'm not immune from this, but um, in the 20th century, there was a movement of Christians called the Red Letter Christians. Anyone remember this? And Red Letter Christians were Christians who said, the thing that I'm going to value most in the Bible is all the words of Jesus. Now, that sounds awesome, because Jesus said some incredible things. Uh, the problem with it was, is these individuals wanted to throw away the Old Testament, and they wanted to do away with all the letters of Paul and Peter and likewise. There's two issues with this. Number one, um, Jesus himself, a lot of what he said were direct quotes of the Old Testament. So you've got to figure that out. And two, one of the ways the Apostle Paul talks about all of Scripture is that it's all inspired by God, all useful for teaching, rebuking, training in righteousness, and ultimately salvation. What's the point? The point is, if we take an a la carte DIY choose your own adventure spiritual, spirituality to thinking about truth, we'll think we need to create it rather than just confess what we've received. And here's what the creed would ask us to do. Christian, modern Christian, take the pressure off. Confess this. Like you can confess this. This has been passed down from the apostles. This is a right, true, orthodox, good, righteous, helpful, faithful summary of the story of Jesus, which is the climax to the story of the Bible. Confess this. Don't create your own spirituality. Don't sacrifice one truth about God on the altar of another truth about God. Take the whole Apostles' Creed, the whole counsel of God, and just say, this is what I confess, why I believe. Paul would put it like this. Actually, not Paul. We don't know the writer of the Hebrews, but um, Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The writer of Hebrews is making this argument that humans are unable to figure out what God is like. One way to think through world religions or DIY Christian spirituality would be to say, we're kind of like blind individuals fumbling around in the dark, trying to speculate our way up to God. And the writer of Hebrews says, oh no, you can only know God if God's willed himself to be known. And if you grant that, here's what's true. He spoke through the prophets and the law and he's revealed himself in the face of Jesus Christ, his only son. In other words, revelation, not speculation. The argument of the Bible is that to know the truth about God, we need to rely upon what he's revealed about himself, not what we can conjure up within ourselves. Anything else is sort of an exercise in futility. Now, welcome to New Life Brisbane, right? What an encouraging way to kick off the service and start the Apostles' Creed. 
But let me just give us an illustration more humorous-like to land us in the truth of this, because we do this all the time. In fact, I do it not by trading something negative about God and just looking at the positive. I do it when I believe in my heart of hearts that what Jesus did on the cross for me really didn't have any value. And I trade the truth about God's grace really for the legalism of my own heart. You can do it with any facet of who God is. You just sacrifice it on the altar of what makes most sense to you in the moment. But doing that is an exercise in futility. I love the story of the, um, the two naval officers that are communicating via radio. One's in a ship, and they notice that it's at night, and the two lights are heading towards one another. And here's the transcript that sort of summarizes their conversation with one another. Uh, one says, upon noticing that they're about to hit one another, says, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. That's Officer 1. Officer 2 says, recommend that you, Officer 1, divert your course 15 degrees. So Officer 1 comes back and says, this is the captain of a US naval ship. I say again, divert your course. And Officer 2 comes back and says, no, I say again that you should divert your course. So Officer 1, the US Navy guy, comes back with one last final blow. And he says, this is an aircraft carrier of the USS Lincoln. Bit of a flex there. We are a large warship with multiple aircraft on board and tactical missiles at the ready. Divert your course. So Officer 2 comes back. And he says, this is a lighthouse, your call. <laughs> now here's what we can do as modern people. We can take a DIY approach to spirituality and say, here's what I believe about God. But what we're doing there is we're creating. We're not confessing, we're inventing, we're not discovering. And the Apostles' Creed and the history of Christians who start this statement, I believe, is to say, what I know to be true about God is what he's revealed about, to me, about himself to me in his word, summarized by the creed. So here's a question. Do you know this truth? Can you confess this truth? What a delightful liberation in a world trying to craft its own spirituality, think its way into what God's like, and God just stands there in the face of Jesus Christ and says, you could just freely confess me. Truth is something we confess. It's not something we create. Second point, this will be my last one. Something about maturity. Something about maturity. I've been reading a book recently um, by a guy named Trevin Wax, and uh, he's an editor for an online uh, Christian magazine over in the States, and the book's called A Thrill of Orthodoxy. What a great title for a book, right? And in there, he sort of puts orthodoxy up against heresy, or even just like sub-truths about God. And he makes the claim that the most thrilling thing to do is not to craft our own ideas about God, although that at face value seems really fun. You know, I can make a God look like me, feel like me, make me feel comfortable in who I am. He says, no, the most thrilling thing is to discover who God really is, a thrill of orthodoxy. And here's what he says. There's a quote here, and I just wanted to quote him at length because this just gets me pumped. He said this, orthodoxy is an adventure of discovery, not invention. And those are two very different things. Discovery is about unearthing what was already there. Invention is about creating something new. Discovery assumes there is something real but not yet known. Invention assumes upon the creative capacity of our own minds. Discovery is about revelation. Invention is about fabrication. The moment we begin to talk about right beliefs, correct doctrine, and bringing our hearts and minds in line with Christian teaching, we're in the realm of discovery. We've come across something real. We've encountered something we didn't create. We've stumbled across a treasure, and get this, we found something we didn't make, but that, that's something that, if we submit to it, will remake us. Isn't that gorgeous? 
Here's what I've discovered. One of the preconditions of relationship is the possibility that the person with whom you have a relationship will challenge you. Between both of you, there could be conflict. And in fact, they might contradict you. One of the preconditions for the possibility of relationship is that you could be contradicted, challenged, and conflict. Uh, there was a, and I'm going somewhere with this, just track with me here. My thoughts aren't as flowy as I thought they were, but that's fine. Uh, in 2004, I think it was, there was a movie put out called The Stepford Wives. Anyone see that movie, Stepford Wives? And it's the story of these husbands in Connecticut, in Stepford, who, uh, I don't know how they did this, but they get rid of their wives and they install in their place a bunch of robotic wives. And all of these robotic wives, they, they never contradict the will of their husbands. They always do what the husband desires. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not condoning this just by the way, uh, commending it. But it's the story of these men who got rid of their wives and instead replaced them with robots who never contradicted them, never challenged them, and, and with whom there was no conflict. Um, in other words, it might have been wonderful and beautiful, uh, but there was no real relationship that persisted. Why? Well, because whatever relationship is, it's got to be between two persons who can choose otherwise how they're going to act. In other words, there's got to be the possibility of contradiction, challenge, and conflict. For a relationship to be real, there's got to be the possibility that someone could use their free will to love me or not love me to say, actually, I won't accept that behavior, or, or that behavior is okay, to challenge, or to encourage. That in other words, the encouragement, the beauty, the joy of relationship, if it's not with a real person who could at any moment change those things, it's nowhere near as real, nowhere near as wonderful, nowhere near as exhilarating, nowhere near as thrilling, there is no possibility of relationship without challenge, conflict, and contradiction. Here's, here's my takeaway point. Um, the creeds would challenge us to ensure that we do not have a Stepford God. Now, how'd I get there? The creeds would challenge us to ensure that the God we have, what comes to our mind when we think about God, our image of God, is not this robotic thing we create that at every point agrees with us, at every point resonates with our own taste buds, at every point um, sort of resonates with what we think God should be like, the, the creeds would challenge us that God is a reality to be discovered who could at any moment challenge us, contradict us, even come in with challenge and, uh, and ask us to do something that actually we wouldn't intuit that we should do. A Stepford God, one we create in our own image, would be unoffensive, wonderfully compliant, but someone with whom we'll never know intimacy or love. Why? Because it's a God we create in our own image, not a God that we accept the image of himself he's revealed through his word. Um, this is something of what Paul's saying in Ephesians 4, and this is kind of where I land the plane. So just as I do, can I invite the band just to join me? as we think about the rest of Christian maturity, Paul would say it like this, um, Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 15, and you'll see a sort of a smaller snippet on the, on the screen up there. He'd say it like this, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service 
so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. What's he saying? Paul is saying that we can either craft our own ideas about God or be unified by the knowledge that we've received of him. To do one is to be quote unquote tossed about by the waves, remaining immature. To do the other is to grow up into the full maturity of Christ. That in other words, long story short, to grow in maturity as a Christian. Here we are. It's to adjust to who God is. Now that's gonna sound strong, but here's what I've learned in marriage. I've learned that one of the things I can do in my immaturity, one of the things I can do in my immaturity is I can look at my marriage partner and say, man, I wish they'd adjust to me. That'd be so helpful. I wish that they would meet my standards of cleanliness. I wish that they would meet my standards of timekeeping. I wish that they would meet my standards of X, Y, Z, A, B, C. But what I've discovered is that maturity in marriage looks like looking at my partner, receiving them as the gift that God's given to me in them, and saying, no matter what, I'm gonna do what I can to adjust to you. Why? Submission and service. And in that space, I grow. Why? Because of who they are, I grow around them. And the beauty of Christian marriage is that's the calling of both individuals. Here's the beauty of Christian relationship with God. If God is who He is, yesterday, today, forever, the task of the Christian life is to grow around Him, is to subject ourselves to Him, to submit to Him, to say with the Christians throughout the ages, I confess this, I believe, here's who God is, and so I will. I will submit to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, the beauty of the Christian story is we, we submit. We accommodate ourselves and adjust ourselves to God, really, because He was the first one to ever accommodate Himself to us. That's the heart of the Christian gospel. But here's what maturity could look like in the Christian life. Christian maturity means saying to God, I'll adjust to you. I will submit to you. You're the King. You're my Lord. You teach me how to live. You show me what's true about you. I will fall in lockstep with you, not because you're a hard taskmaster who's gonna smite me, but because you were the original one who ever adjusted to me, accommodated to me in the person of Jesus Christ. There's an image I wanna finish us with as we think about what the Apostles' Creed could mean for us. There's a painting in a French museum. Uh, it was painted in 1512 to 1514 by a guy named Matthias Grinwald. And it's, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but you'll see it on the screen behind me. It's Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. Now this is the center point of our Christian faith. And this is the center point of the creed that we'll say in a moment. I believe in Jesus Christ. But to say with the creed, what's true about God is similar to be what John the Baptist is in the bottom right-hand corner of this image. There's a phrase there in Latin, and it summarizes his words in John's gospel, which say something like, I must, oh no, the opposite, he must increase and I must decrease. 
because I know the truth about who He is and I know what it looks like for me to mature in Him. He must increase, I must decrease, pointing at the crucified Messiah hanging on a cross. To say the Apostles' Creed is to be like John the Baptist who in this image has this feeble, shaking finger looking at the crucified Christ saying this should be the center of your life. This is who God is and this is the cross we might bear as we follow after Him in submission to Him as King. What does the Creed give us? The Creed gives us something about truth. It shows us something about truth. The truth, truth isn't something we create. It's something we confess. And maturity. Maturity means I'm not going to try and create God in my own image. I'm going to let God define who He is and adjust my life to that. Why? Because at the heart of the Christian story and in the center of the creed and the loudest thing in the whole biblical story is God in Jesus Christ accommodating Himself to us. What's He doing? There on the cross, after living the life we all should have lived, He's dying the death that we all deserve. Soon after, He'll be buried and then He'll be raised to new life, giving the ultimate vindication of His person, His mission and His work. Why? So that the creed might not just be something we say and memorize. The scriptures might not just be something we submit to, but relationship with Him might be the center point of our lives. This is what we're in for as we step into the creed. This is what it's about. This is the adventure. This is the thrill of orthodoxy to come in line with our brothers and sisters from time immemorial in whatever place and say, actually, I believe. Like, I, what a joy it is to say that I believe. What a delight it is to be able to confess this great truth that's upturned kingdoms, overthrown empires and changed the, soft, the hardest of hearts into the softest of malleable pieces. And so we're going to respond in worship. And if you need prayer at any point this afternoon, I invite you to come forward. We'll have prayer team available on both sides with white lanyards. But before we do, we're going to say the creed. And every week after this, we're going to say it together before we preach. Not because that replaces the scriptures, but it's going to be like the, the infrastructure, the scaffolding through which we sit in the scriptures as we approach Easter. And we'll say it together and we'll walk through it in small groups. But we're going to say it together right now. So as you prepare, why can't, let me just invite you to stand if that's okay. And what I might do is, as I begin to speak, I, I might ask um, Tim, who's on sound, just to mute, and I'll put my hands up when I'm ready for you to mute me, because I don't want to be the loudest voice. And I want to go acoustic, so we might say together, if you're a follower of Jesus, you call him Lord, you call him friend, that you might be able to step into this history. And so it'll be on the screen behind me. If you go there now, James, that'd be wonderful. And uh, why not? Extra points if you do it in unison, hey? friends let's say together hey thanks again for listening to the new life podcast if that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer or maybe you want to join us in this mission of seeing more people more like jesus you can contact us through our website church.nu or send us a message on our instagram or facebook pages we pray that you have a great week be blessed